compassion practices, we seem to alleviate dukkha for the self, which is illusory anyway. <laughs> exactly. It may be an illusion, but it sure suffers. Right? So, yeah. The self is an illusion, but still things go wrong and we interpret it as something bad happened to me. Because, yeah, something bad happened to this mind-body process. The self is a shorthand for the intersection of innumerable streams of dependently arising processes interacting. Okay, this particular intersection. Uh, and we take it to be a solid thing, but it's just a bunch of stuff happening. However, the practices of metta and self-compassion can alleviate the unpleasant experiences, this intersection of all these streams of experience. So what it benefits from these practices? Those practices are streams also feeding into the <coughs> intersection of all those other streams. So the intersection of those streams benefits. We call this intersection me. This is on the relative level. On the absolute level, yeah, can't find the self. But on the relative level, it's me. I experience dukkha. I do the metta and self-compassion practices. I feel better. This operates on the relative level. Just because there's an absolute level doesn't mean the relative level doesn't exist. Uh, absolute is kind of not the best word. Ultimate, that's not as good. Nagarjuna says, uh, truths that are sublime, so the sublime level. And the level of truth that doesn't fully reveal what's going on. I mean, this is me, not you, this is me. But that doesn't fully reveal what's going on. Can you please talk about how metta and self-compassion practices help to penetrate the illusory self? Oh, really? Okay. There's a lot that's got to be done. It's necessary to basically come to terms with the limitations of the relative level and also get glimpses at the ultimate level. And so the metta, the compassion, the medita, the equanimity, those are operating on the relative level. The equanimity is the one that gets the closest to the ultimate level. You've got to take care of both levels. I mean, they're both existing. It's not that it is one and the other is imaginary. They're just perspectives. And so you need to clean things up from all the perspectives. And the meta practice helps you do that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Might save my vocal cords. That's clear. Any questions on that?
So tonight's talk starts with a question. But if you've heard me ask this question before, you don't get the answer. <laughs> You're supposed to know the answer. Right? So this is for the people that haven't heard the question before. What were the Buddha's last words? Be a light unto yourself. <clears throat> the word is deepa, means lamp. Be a lamp unto yourself. It also means island. Be an island unto yourself. Any, any other suggestions? Strive on with heedfulness. Strive on with heedfulness. Live long and Actually, what he said, all the things of creation are subject to decay. Drive on with heedfulness, or diligently seek liberation. So the second question again, if you sat with me, you're supposed to know the answer to this. After the Buddha finished the first sermon, he looked and he saw that Kandanya knew. Anya Kandanya. What did Kandanya know? I told you that one. Anybody ever remember? Everything that arises, all that arises is subject to passing. Exactly. So the Buddha's teaching started with the Nietzsche and ended with the Nietzsche. The Nietzsche is really important. It often gets translated as impermanence. Yeah, that's true. But it's a broader term. Uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu translates it as inconstancy. So it's not just that things go away, but it's also that while they're here, they change. So changeability, inconstancy, and eventually impermanence. When we first come to the practice, we hear about Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Right? Everything changes. Okay. I'll buy that. Everything is dukkha. What? what about that chocolate cake? It wasn't dukkha. All right, that, that seems a little weird. I mean, yeah, definitely there's a lot of dukkha around, but the chocolate cake wasn't dukkha. And then, not self. And that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe the chocolate cake is suffering. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Most well, it doesn't make me feel good, too. It makes me want more. Right, yeah. So you've already gotten beyond the original thing that people firstly get. You know, it's like something they can come up with. That's not Dukkha. And the not-self, that's just weird. I mean, who's sitting here? Here he is. So that's, you well, know, we got one out of three, right? Well, no, because I think if you fully got the Anicca thing, you'd get the other two as well. In fact, if you fully got the Anicca thing, you'd probably be fully awakened. Nietzsche's all-pervasive. It's much bigger than we think it is. We hear people say they don't like change, but if all change stopped for them, they'd be dead, right? Because you breathe based on Nietzsche. Right? You have to breathe in and you have to change it and breathe out. Same thing with your blood circulation, right? 
got to pump. It's got to come in. It's got to go out. All those little chambers doing their things. The blood's got to move. Your food getting digested. We're just machines running on an each That's why we need fuel for the machine. If nothing changed, you wouldn't need any fuel, right? You'd be carved out of granite. But because everything's changing, you got to get fuel, stick it in. We call that fuel food. And we got to have oxygen so we can burn the fuel, right? And so there's a lot of anicca going on right there. The whole world actually runs on anicca. The, the crops grow, we harvest them, we eat them. Some of them we can't eat right away, we got to put them in the oven, we can change them around. There's anicca everywhere. When the bell rings, there's the change from it not ringing, but the actual ringing itself. You can hear the dings, that's the vibration, the vibration. <laughs> Hundreds of times a second. There's a story about a kingdom where a new king came to power. And he let it be known that whoever gave him the best coronation gift, the most powerful coronation gift, would become the new prime minister. He wanted something truly powerful. You know, people presented him with all sorts of things. The general of the army presented him with a bow that was so strong, almost nobody could pull it back. It was powerful. It didn't shoot a arrow, if you could pull it back, really far. The old prime minister, he presented the new king with an elephant. Everybody figured, yeah, he's going to get to keep his job. But then a jeweler comes up. And he kneels before the king. And he puts out a little jeweler's box. You know the guy. And the jeweler says, be very careful, your majesty. What's in this box has the power to make you happy when you are sad, but also to make you sad when you're happy. Well, the king was obviously intrigued, opened the box, it was a ring. And written around the ring was engraved, this too shall pass. This is what happens. A student comes in, they're having a really bad day. Say to him, Anicca is your friend, right? Of course, you're having a really good day, maybe Anicca's not your friend. <laughs> All back to perspective again. I talked about time last night, how it's something we make up because we're trying to measure the rate of change. Day turns to night, night turns to day. <laughs> Seasons change into one another. It's kind of useful to know these changes, know when to plant the crops, know when to harvest the crops. Kind of necessary to keep track of change. And yet, the time that we're using to do that is completely imaginary. And yet, it sort of runs our lives. Daryl Bailey. 
There was a monk with Ajahn Sumedho in uh, England at Amravati Monastery. And eventually he returned to lay life and went back to Winnipeg, where he's from, and wrote this book entitled Buddhessence, what he felt was the essence of the Buddha's teachings. It's, a, it's quite a good book. I really liked it. What he did for chapter one is he went through the suttas and he pulled out a bunch of sayings from the Buddha that he felt were really showing the essence of what the Buddha was teaching. He basically took a whole bunch of stuff out of context and then wrote a commentary around it. And mostly he did a really good job. There's a couple of places they go, Daryl, that's not what that means. But mostly it's like, yeah, right on, this is really good. So what I want to do is share with you just some of the verses that he pulled out that are in the first chapter. And take a look at what someone who yeah, did 12 years of practice as a monk thought was the essence of the Buddha's teaching. <clears throat> there will come a time when even the great mountains and the earth itself will be gone. All things are impermanent unstable and insecure. Although it, is, although it is of great benefit to feed Buddhists, to feed the monastic community, to build monasteries, to follow the moral precepts, and to practice loving-kindness, it is of more benefit to maintain the perception of impermanence. It is better to live a single day perceiving how things rise and fall than to live a century not perceiving them. <clears throat> Everything is changing. Not even as much as a pinch of dust is unchanging. Physical forms, vedna, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness, all of these arise, pass away, and while they are present, they change. They are insubstantial, without essence. Physical form is like a lump of froth. Vedna, like a water bubble. Perception is a mirage. Mental activities are like the empty banana tree trunk. And consciousness is a magician's trick. Not much there. This is what you are, right? More or less, this is your experience. And you're experiencing a bunch of ephemeral stuff. Form. Just a lump of foam. Vedana. A water bubble. The Buddha talks of it raining and a raindrop falling in a puddle and a bubble appearing. And how long does that last? Probably even less time than a chocolate cake. <laughs> Perception is a mirage. Your concepts are mirages. Mental activities are like empty banana tree trunks. You know a banana tree? You know, you get a nice thick trunk, right? You get your machete, whack, you can cut it down in a single stroke. Because it's empty, it's hollow. Just like your thoughts and emotions and memories and intentions and all the rest of your mental activities. And consciousness is a magician's trick. 
Sometimes science talks about the hard problems. The most common hard problem I see referenced is where does consciousness come from? How does that arise? How does this collection of molecules, atoms, suddenly become aware of itself? Easy, it's a magician's trick. <laughs> Life is like a flowing river, never pausing for a moment, an instant, or a second. Reminds me of Heraclitus. Can't step in the same river twice. It's just continually changing. There is an unformed happening. It is ignorance of the unformed that gives rise to formations. To believe that there is permanent formation in the impermanence, flowing, is a distortion of perception, thought, and view. So I said, there aren't any nouns. It's just some verbs move slower than others. Some move really slow, and we think they're a thing. But they're changing all the time. And when you really get down to it, it's just one verb unfolding. That's all that's happening. Unfolding. But our pea brains can't take it all in, so we got to chop it up into bits and pieces, small enough chunks that we can handle. And we take the chunks that are moving slow, and we make them into nouns. And then we find the nice nouns, and want them, and possess them, and they change, and we experience them. A young infant does not have ideas of a self, things, rites and rituals, sensual pleasures, and beings. A young infant does not have ideas of a body, speech, or intention. And yet the underlying tendency to develop, to develop self-views, rites and rituals, sensual desires, and ill will lies within him. When he grows and his faculties mature, he plays a game. When he grows and his faculties mature still further, the youth enjoys himself with sensual pleasures of formation. Sight, sound, smells, tastes, and touches. On seeing a physical form if he wants it, he, if on seeing a physical form he wants it if it is pleasing, and dislikes it if it is displeasing. Absorbed in liking and disliking, he clings to any feeling he feels. On hearing a sound, smelling a smell, tasting a flavor, touching a texture, noticing a mental object, there is clinging. Right? So when we arrive here, we got no clue. It's just an overwhelming mass of sensory input. And then things begin to start making sense. One of the first things you learn is if you make a lot of noise, the unpleasant might go away and the pleasant might arrive. Right? And then eventually you're able to distinguish between yourself and your mother. And then eventually you start finding toys and playing with them. And eventually you're able to seek out your own sources of pleasure and push away the sources that are not pleasing. Birth is origin, descent into the womb, delivery, the appearance of the five groups of formations, the five aggregates, 
and the functioning of these sense faculties around these formations, these aggregates. What is called a being when firmly entangled in desiring physical forms, Vedna perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. The five focuses of clinging, these five aggregates, create dukkha. When one has a desire for physical forms, Vedna perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness, then when they change, sorrow, pain, and despair arise here. This is the cause of dukkha. This desire arises when things appear to be enjoyable and ultimately fulfilling. There are four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sense pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to self-theories, and clinging to rites and rituals. So, clinging to sensual pleasures, right? So, your artwork, right? Your comfortable clothes, your, I used to say record collection, <laughs> and then I said your cassette collection, and then I said your CD collection. Now your Spotify list, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, all the things that give you sense pleasures. And this can include material objects, it can include ideas, it can include people. We need to fuse. We get here, we haven't got a clue what's going on. And we attempt to figure out what's happening. And when we think we have a clue, we construct a view around this. And the views that we get early on, we cling to very tightly. This is primarily due to the way our brains are constructed. We don't come in hardwired like a lizard. We've got a little bit of hardwiring, like cry if you don't like what things are going on. Right? But the complicated stuff, right? We get views of understanding that. And whatever you get in there early, that's what tends to stick. And unfortunately, when you're four years old, sometimes you generate a view that just doesn't serve you. It makes sense to a four-year-old, but it doesn't work when you're an adult. You're clinging to that view. You're clinging to it so much, you've got to go find a therapist and pay him $100 an hour to convince you to let go of this thing that doesn't serve you anymore. And they tell you, it doesn't serve you anymore. And then you're back next week paying him another $100 an hour to tell him it doesn't serve you anymore. We cling to these views so tightly, it's not even under our control. Right? And then we get later views, we cling to those. And then somebody comes along with an opposing view and we just know instantly that person is stupid because they don't have the same view as us. I think I mentioned earlier that an open mind is a really good thing to bring on a spiritual path. Yeah, all your views need to be held lightly. They're provisional until a better view comes along. cling to self-theories. How do we fit into this? This is a specific set of views, right? 
what's my role in this crazy place I find myself here? I used to have a little cartoon on the wall that said, this life is only a test. Had this been a real life, you would have been given instructions on where to go and what to do. This life is only a test. Right? Uh, yeah. How are we supposed to fit in? If we get some idea how we fit in, and we'll cling real tightly to that view of self until it just gets to be too painful and we have to come up with something else. And clinging to rites and rituals. Well, you probably aren't clinging to religious rites and rituals. We don't do that quite as much in the West as they were doing at other time in the Buddha. But you have your habits and whatnot that you're really hooked into. Suppose you go down to breakfast tomorrow, there's no coffee. And there's not even any tea. Oh my gosh. How are you going to survive? Right? Yeah, we have our rites and rituals. They sometimes do serve us, right? But we're, we're attached there. We don't want to give that up. Ignorance of the flowing, unformed quality of life gives rise to a tendency to fixate on formations, and this gives rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. A wise disciple sees this and is no longer fascinated by physical forms, vedana, perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness. So you go to the beach. You take a little kid with you, and you build a sandcastle, a really magnificent sandcastle. You find some driftwood to make a drawbridge, you've got towers, you've got a moat, right? Big wave comes along, wipes it out. The little kid is screaming, terribly upset. Are you upset? No. You understand the nature of sandcastles. You don't expect it to survive. In fact, you understand it so well that the big wave wiping it out is kind of fun, right? I've got news for you people. It's all sandcastles. Every bit of it. When it's a sandcastle, no matter how magnificent it is, you don't think, oh, this is a great sandcastle. Let's dig it up and take it home in the trunk of the car. We'll put it on the dining room table. <laughs> this does not occur to you. Because you know the nature of sandcastles. All the things of creation are subject to decay. You know, some of them are going to decay after you decay, right? Some of them are going to decay before you decay. But there's going to be decay happening all along. You've got to come to terms with that. If you don't want it to decay and it decays, that's dukkha. Of course, sometimes it doesn't decay fast enough for you, and that's dukkha. Right? You've got to come to terms with the anicca nature of the universe. Life is like a flowing mountain river, never pausing for a moment or an instant or a second. Perceiving impermanence in all formations, and all formations will be seen as insubstantial, changing, not lasting. Verbs, not nouns. 
Perceiving impermanence, the mind does not reach for gain or control. Knowing that physical forms of their perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness are insubstantial, fading away, and ultimately unsatisfying, the attraction to these is given up. With no attachment to physical forms, their perceptions, mental activities, and consciousness, and when they change, no sorrow, pain, grief, and despair arises. Liberation. Perceiving no lasting formation, no mentality or materiality, the mind is rid of the conceits of I and mine, this body and consciousness. If you really get it, then you don't keep making up the one who's going to get it when you crave it or is going to keep it when you cling to it. That one isn't there, and there's no basis for craving and clinging. No craving, no clinging, no dukkha. The mind with understanding is set free from the asava of sensual desire, ideas of endless pleasure. The, asavas, the asava of becoming, ideas of self and world, this life, future lives. The asava of views, interpretations, the asava of ignorance, ideas of self, permanence. Supreme emptiness, liberation, is the presence of the six sensory fields, the happening of the moment. Without the asava of sensual desire, the asava of becoming, and the asava of ignorance. Assuming everybody remembers Asava as intoxicant. That which is absent, desire, self, world, and permanence, is known to be absence. That which is present, the happening of the moment, is present. Whoever in the past reached and remained in pure emptiness, liberation, who is this that they reach? By not clinging to views, seeing life clearly, being freed from all sense desires, one is not born again into delusion and clean. So, what are you clinging to? Something happened to me three years ago now that kind of brought this home. I was sitting on my couch reading a book one Saturday afternoon. <coughs> There's a knock at the door. They open the door. There's two guys standing there. One of them's kind of tall. The other one's kind of short and dumpy. They're wearing suits. They got on hats, white shirt, tie. Look like the Blues Brothers. These guys were not the Blues Brothers. The tall one whips out a badge and says, FBE, we've come for the socks. What? What? <laughs> What are you talking about? The little one's got a clipboard. He says, Federal Bureau of Enlightenment. What? He says, didn't you sign up for enlightenment? Are ambitious, aren't we? <laughs> what are you talking about? Look, we know that in the uh, right-hand top drawer of your chest of drawers, in the back left-hand side, there are five socks with holes in them that you've been saying you were going to fix for a long time. 
We've come for those socks. Are you clinging to them or are you willing to let them go? Give them up. You want the socks? Yeah. Wait here. I close the door. I lock the door. <laughs> I, I go upstairs. I open the drawer. Yeah, I'm never going to fix these socks. I go down. I give them the socks. They seem happy. They go away. I'm like, wow, that was weird. I mean, I didn't live too far from Berkeley, but that was weird even for Berkeley. Right? So the next day, sitting on the couch, reading the same book, there's a knock at the door. I actually looked through the peephole this time. Same two guys. Wonder what they want. Well, if it's just only socks, I don't have any more. Open the door. FBE, we've come for the celery. The celery? <laughs> you talking about? You know that in the left-hand crisper, in the bottom of your refrigerator, there are four stalks of celery that are really old. Are you willing to let them go when you give them up, or are you clinging to the celery? You want the celery? Yeah. Okay, wait here. Close the door, lock the door. Go in the kitchen, open the crisper. Oh, I forgot about the celery. <laughs> you want it. I give it to them, they go away all happy again. Like, this is really weird. The next day, I'm at work. I tell my friends about it. We all have a good laugh, right? Goes on like this, you know. People bring it up. Hey, those guys come back. No, I haven't seen them. <laughs> Saturday, sitting on the couch, reading a different book. There's a knock at the door. Look through the people. Sam, what do they want this time? Open the door. FBE, you've come for the couch. The couch? You can't have the couch. Go away, go away. You're clinging to the couch. Yeah, you're right, I'm clinging to the couch. You're going to let a couch stand in the way of your Aron ship? Yeah, go away. You went on like this for like 15 minutes. I had to agree they had a point, <laughs> you know. I was clinging to the couch. All right, you can have the couch. Now, get the couch in and out of my apartment. There's a trick. I did not tell them the trick. <laughs> they figured it out. <laughs> there goes my couch, my couch. Next day, sitting in a chair, reading a book. It's a knock at the door. I look through the people, not opening the door. I don't know what they want, but this can't be good, right? Open up, we know you're in there. Come on, open up. I'm knocking on the door. Go away, go away. We're not gonna go away. Open up, we know you're in there. Finally open the door, what? come for the hot tub. The hot tub. I snatched the clipboard out of the little guy's hands. I look at it. There it is. Socks, celery, couch, hot tub, waterbed, Prius, girlfriend. Girlfriend. I shove the clipboard back in their faces. I push them out the door. I slam the door. I lock the door. I'm leaning up against the door. My heart is pounding. My palms are sweating. 
And then I realized I'd made a really big mistake. I opened the door. They were only at the end of the driveway. I shouted after him, hey, can I have my couch back? <laughs> <laughs> so what are you clinging to? When the FBE comes knocking at your door, <laughs> what are you going to not give them? I mentioned in the Prajma Paramita Sutras, there's a sutra called the Diamond Cutter Sutra. Sometimes here referred to as the Diamond Sutra. There's an excellent translation and commentary by Musang from Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. If you're interested in reading it, it's quite good. It builds. Sort of like Polaro. Yeah. It's just getting more and more intense. And yeah, really, really good. It builds to this verse. Thus you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. All the things of creation are subject to decay. Diligently seek liberation. <laughs> Any questions? Okay. Let's say I somehow got rid of my sense of self. The brain is still functioning. It's all aggregates flowing are happening. So the eye will see something that and the mind will judge it as unpleasant. Maybe the mind judges it as extremely unpleasant. Now, are you saying that the mind won't so I mentioned the Buddha had a bad back. And at times he would say, Sorry, Buddha, would you give the Dhamma talk? Right? And he'd go lie down, listen to it, and come out and say, Yeah, if I'd give him a talk, I'd have said the same thing. He was certainly experiencing sufficiently unpleasant Vedna that he was unable to give the Dhamma talk and needed to go lie down. Did he suffer? Or was it just like, can't give the Dharma talk tonight, Tarzuka, can you please elaborate on the topic of whatever? That's my assumption, that he wasn't suffering. Mm -hmm. He recognized this is a situation that needs to be dealt with, and the dealing with it is to go lie down. And so he went and lay down. That's my understanding of what happened. But I don't know for sure. So if you really want to know, <laughs> yeah, you got to go check it out for yourself. So yeah, wake up, get free.
was able to operate the conventional world. You know, he, he got up in the morning, he took his robe and bowl and went into town on alms round. And when he was eating his alms food, he never ate his fingers. So he could still distinguish this mind-body process and what parts of it, of the world it was embedded in, he should take his robe and bowl. So still the conventional reality is available there. But there's no sense of a craver or a clinger. And it's no deeper. That part's gone. my understanding. <coughs> Actually, I just know the answer to my question. Um, I was on a retreat with Jim Benyang, and he talked about pain, uh, physical pain, and he said, if you just look at the pain, you see, it's always changing. And if you're just looking at it, you don't suffer. Right. And so during that retreat, he had us do examination sessions. So I said that I would sit for an hour without moving. Set a time, like, uh, how long I'm going to sit without moving or nothing. So I decided I'm going to sit for an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> anyway, I started sitting and sitting there, okay, and then, um, then I started having a pain in the leg, and it changed its very worse the rest of it, and then I remember what it said, and I started watching it, and as I was watching it, you know, it was changing, like you said, but while I was just watching it, um, I wasn't suffering. Right. Watch it, and what you're watching is lots of changing, unpleasant, or vedana. And you don't have to go any further than that by calling it pain or wishing it would go away or anything. Yeah. I've had a few students who suffer from chronic pain, and it's not easy to get to the jhanas <laughs> if you have chronic pain. But what they found was they could focus on their chronic pain until it broke up into just a lot of unpleasant vedna happening, and the aversion to the pain dropped away, and the dropping away of the aversion was pleasant enough to propel them into the first class. Yeah. The mind is a very interesting tool if you can just get out of some of its craving and clinging bits. Mind. What do I mean to say when I say mind? mind. I mean, the, this, the software. Are you talking about the brain itself or the overall body or, or the function? Because we, we look at it as like a sixth sense and so right. what is it actually? Yeah, so it's the software that runs your hardware. That's one way to look at it. 
another way, the mind is the neurological activity in response to the environment in which it finds itself embedded. So it's the activity of the brain. It's not the brain. The brain is the brain. It's the activity of the brain, but it's not just the brain. It's the whole neurological thing. It's the senses and the spinal column and your vagus nerve and all of this. It's the activity that arises in response to the environment in which the organism finds itself embedded. So the mind actually extends into the environment, right? You might have noticed it when it was really hot. Your mind was somewhat different than when it cooled off. Okay, so not all just in case there in your skull. It's getting sensory input, and that sensory input is changing the mind. So it's basically the software, but it's the, to get it more specific, it's the activity of the nervous system in response to the environment in which the organism finds itself in bed. That's my definition. Similar pain experience with arthritis of the knee, and I would sit and watch it, and as it continued to swell, um, I finally got up and sat in a chair. It was the best, best sit I had the whole retreat. Right. <laughs> so, and I, Buddha had chronic back problems. Lying down was the solution to the problem. Right. Yes. Common sense, I think. And, When you were talking about the king that had killed his father, and you know, what a brave part of it. The Buddha had to negotiate around these kings and yeah. his ultimate power. If you know, he told the king that, hey, you're kind of a jerk for killing your dad. And the next thing you know, there's an opening for 1,500 bald people in the station. Yeah, he was brilliant at working with the secular power at, at that time. Uh, King Bimbisara was a very dedicated supporter. King Pasanati, the other king, and they were sort of like threatening to go at it with each other, was also a supporter, not, not as dedicated as, as Bimbisara. And then Bimbisara is killed by Ajatasattu, and yet the Buddha manages to convert Ajitasattu to becoming a Buddhist as well, being a follower of the Buddha and a protector of the Buddha. And then there was the king of the area around Kosambi, and that king was a supporter of the Buddha. Uh, remember, he's a Katya. He's from the warrior class. He's from, well, the foothills of the Himalayas, northern India, now in Nepal. Uh, or, well, Kapilavastu, I guess, is still in, in northern India, right on the border with Nepal. And uh, it was a warrior group. It was probably a very macho culture. He talks in some of the suttas about how everybody's always quarreling. 
And in fact, the Sutta we did on dependent origination, quarrels and disputes. That obviously was a part of growing up. And yet he seems to have come from, well, not the king. His father wasn't the king. His father was the elected leader. And he probably grew up in the best hut in town. But, you know. but he learned enough about the political situation that he was able to negotiate his way amongst all these secular powers and wind up with support from all of them as well, which is actually pretty good, as well as finding a way to awakening and, you know, teaching it to a whole bunch of other people. Uh, he definitely was one of the world's greatest geniuses. saying, you must teach these, they're in danger of becoming a lost art. Did I tell you that story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I figured, okay, it, this is going to be fine because uh, she had a Dutch woman who was teaching in Australia, and she had eight students that were teaching in Germany and Switzerland. So I figured, okay, there's me, all right, ten of us here, we ought to be able to preserve this. Then I found out the Dutch woman was no longer teaching. And the students of hers in Germany weren't teaching jhana retreats. They would teach jhanas to people that, you know, were getting into access concentration, but they weren't advertising jhana retreats. So that kind of freaked me out. I was like, wait a second. Uh, so yeah, I'm trying to find people that I think can teach this. And yeah, I found a few, trained a few people to teach these. So I don't know what's going to happen. I really am just a computer programmer. The fact that I'm able to do any teaching at all is kind of, well, that's a surprise. But then to try and organize other people, teach them how to teach, get other people teaching something that's really difficult to teach. Yeah, that's way outside of my skill set. But I seem to have had it thrust upon me. So I, yeah, I've got a few people that hopefully this will keep going. But yeah, um, I definitely like to find another 20, 30 people <laughs> to teach jhanas, but I don't think there are 20 or 30 jhana teachers in the planet. So, yeah. They're still teaching. They teach retreats. They just don't teach jhana retreats. So they're just teaching insight retreats. This is what Ayakima was doing originally. She would teach a retreat. She wouldn't talk about jhanas in the Dharma talks. That first retreat with her, I think she used the word jhana once in a public setting. It was basically she was surprised how many of her students could enter the jhanas. And so that told me that a jhana, whatever it was, was kind of a hard thing to do. And then I 
she mentioned it in an interview with me when I asked her, could I just do the walking meditation? Because I couldn't get the mindfulness of breathing to work. She said, it won't get you concentrated enough to enter the jhanas. So obviously the jhanas were concentration thing. That's all she said. But she was teaching jhanas because people would you know, come in and describe their meditation and they're getting to access and then she would give them instructions for the first jhana. But not teaching them publicly. And that's what her students are doing. But uh, a lot of curiosity about the jhanas out there, and people want to come on retreats where the jhanas are taught. Oh, I don't have to tell you guys that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It's a very weird world we live in. I mean, when one of the world's experts on the jhanas is a hippie computer programmer from Mississippi, <laughs> the world is in trouble. Have you, have you talked to those other teachers about why they don't do jhana retreats? Why they don't teach it more directly? Both of them and I didn't. Well, I came eventually did. Uh, she was giving lectures on them, talking about them. Yeah, so that first retreat was 85. By 1990, she was giving the 10-day retreat there. Uh, yeah, three Dharma talks on the jhanas. I did three Dharma talks on the jhanas also. So, yeah. Uh, so I did go to an Ayakema uh, Dharma teacher's meeting in Berlin, which was really quite quite a wonderful thing. I had known some of these people for quite a long time and others I'd never met before. There was one guy I hadn't seen in, what, 25 years? Uh, so it was really nice to connect with him again. Uh, and so it was a really wonderful weekend. Uh, we were talking about our teaching and so forth. And they were all, yeah, it's really hard to teach jhana retreats. We, we teach it to people that we feel you know, can learn it. It's just like, yeah, it's hard to teach jhana retreats. I know it's hard to teach jhana <laughs> retreats. But they didn't seem to be really interested in putting it out there like that. Is the hard because of, yeah. of adverse effects or just because so many people will struggle with it? Or what are the barriers that? Yeah, it's hard because of both of those. Uh, it's hard because some people experience them and some people don't. So you got to teach a retreat that hopefully has things that are interesting enough, useful enough for those who don't experience jhana. It's hard. Just it's difficult teaching. Everybody's a little different. You got to figure out what's working for this person when they come in for the interviews. It's kind of intense doing a lot of interviews. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about jhanas out there. You're not going to get support from other teachers. Uh, it's a long list. I made the same topic. Before practicing I've heard other teachers uh, talking kind of negatively in general about contemplation. Yep. Saying it's not going to bring liberation to all of your time. <laughs> Focus on mindfulness. Um, 
And also, I listened to this Yeah, there are these things, but don't worry about them. They're kind of tough to get to, and like, kind of doesn't worth spending the effort on it. And then he also repeats the same thing that they're not going to bring you full liberation. Right. You can kind of give it a try, but don't, don't spend too much time on that. Yeah. It's. Yes, the jhanas are not going to bring you full liberation. And the road to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon. Why would you want to see the road to the Grand Canyon? <laughs> the road to the Grand Canyon is just another highway. Why bother? Except how you get to the Grand Canyons. <laughs> right? <laughs> the same with the jhanas. I mean, it's very clear from the suttas that the Buddha thought they were quite important, that they were an essential part of the path for those that could do it. People have different skills, and some people, this is a very valuable tool because they have a skill in that way. For other people, they have other skills. You should take advantage of the skills that you have on the spiritual path. Joe Franzel has actually changed a bit his latest concentration course. He does talk a little more favorably about the jhanas. I've actually listened to the talks from the course he did. I believe it was in, I think it was this spring. Not sure. So he's a little more jhana friendly. And yeah, the teachers who say the jhanas are not going to take you to liberation are. It's, I saw a, for the second time thing on the internet saying, well, we did the test and organic food is no more nutritious than non organic food. And they're going, you stupid people, that's not why we buy organic food. Organic food is less poisonous than non-organic food. You're testing the wrong thing. You know, and if you're saying, well, the Jonas aren't the same as liberation, well, of course not. Nobody's making that claim. But they're certainly very helpful if you have a skill for concentration. That's how you use the skill. And so anybody that makes that claim, I'm not recording this. <laughs> Anybody that makes that claim simply doesn't know anything about the jhanas and they're showing their ignorance by making such a claim. I think the conflict is that the Siddhi Manga jhanas versus what you're teaching. Yeah. And that the belief is that, that unless you're on a very intensive retreat, you're not going to be that full absorption. Yeah. And I, I heard um, Gil actually talk very tenderly about the jhanas and said it was. Um, yeah. yeah, he's much more of a supporter now. I've actually taught two courses with him, and I gave my Donna talks during those courses. You know, the three that you heard, and you know, he didn't have a problem with that. So he's more Jana friendly. When I first encountered Gil Franzo, he was anti Jana. Uh, my first real getting to know him was on a course, uh, a year long Sutta study class, where we went through a number of suttas in the long discourses and the middle length discourses. We met once a month for a whole day. It was really good. And we had to write a paper for every class. And he gave us things to read. And one of the papers he gave us was his paper on why the jhanas were useless or wrong practice or something. And boy, did I blast him with my paper. 
He never really commented on it, but you know, it was very easy for me, and this was long before I was teaching. Well, no, it was the year before I started teaching. But I knew enough about Majanus to refute every single one of his arguments. And now he's much more pro-Jana. Yeah. And you're right, the confusion of Sutta Jhanas and the Sudhimaga Jhanas has, has set Buddhism back quite a long ways. Because, yeah, you probably shouldn't waste your time as a layperson trying to get good at the Vasudhi Maga Jhanas. They're Jhanas for full-time practitioners, called monks and nuns. And at Powak's monastery, only about 30% of the monks and nuns can actually get to the first jhana. You know, it's really difficult stuff. And the nuns do a little better than the monks. And the people. There's not many more teachers because they haven't practiced them. Right. Done the Vasudhi Maga Jhanas. Right. Uh, but there are not many Sutta Jhana teachers either. I mean, the Vasudhi Maga Jhanas are completely impractical for lay people. I mean, the few, there are a few people who can do them, but they can only do them on retreat. And most lay people, well, they're lay people and they're not on retreat all the time. Whereas what Ayakema was teaching, you can take it home. It depends on how well you know it and how good your daily practice. And yet, yeah. I mean, I had high hopes of, you know, all right, well, we'll spread this out there, but people don't want to hear it. Well, they got, they got their shtick, and they don't want to use an opinion. I think we talked about <laughs> um, nothing else. I decided to, I, we, a lot of us come with different methods. I came with silent illumination from John. And when I decided to kind of take a break from this, I went right into it. I mean, it helps me with my other method, but before I would kind of, I'm really not sure how I get there. I just sort of sit and it kind of happens. But right. now I have a step by step, I want to sit this way, I can do accessory and per second, you know, and, and, and it takes me right there, it makes it yeah. much more advanced, it's just, it's just, you know, I can't think of it up. <laughs> it's, it's quite amazing how much it enhances stuff. your practice. It's quite valuable stuff, if you have a skill for that. And as I say, people have different skills. Some people, yeah, it comes easy, some people got to work real hard, some people not their skills. Did uh, Buddha Dasa or Atanta mention it at all or in what way? I did Ajahn Buddha Dasa and Ajahn Chah mention the jhanas. Ajahn Buddha Dasa mentioned them in his book Mindfulness with Breathing. He says that steps five, six, seven, and eight are not the same as the jhanas. That's all he says in the sixteen oh, okay. steps of the uh, Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing. Uh, in talking with Santikaro, he felt that Ajahn Buddhadasa's understanding of the jhanas was probably more uh, aligned with the Vasudhimaga understanding, which is kind of interesting because Ajahn Buddhadasa was not a fan of the Vasudhimaga. In fact, he wrote numerous articles basically pointing out that the Vasudhimaga didn't have a clue what he was talking about and referring back to the suttas. But jhanas, 
were at that time only thought of as what's described in the Basudimana. Ajahn Chah talks about the jhanas a little bit. He mentions in his, them in his book, Food for the Heart, which is a collection of his Dharma talks. And they're mentioned there, and they do seem to be Vasudhimaga style jhanas. One of his students, Ajahn Brahmawamso, Ajahn Brahm, in Perth, Australia, teaches very deep jhanas that seem to be in, in accord with the Vasudhimaga. So I think Ajahn Chah, understanding of the jhanas, which he apparently did practice, was the Sudhimaga jhana. Sorry, what's the book? Book for the Heart. Very, very good book. It's got a lot of great Dharma talks in it from uh, Ajahn Chah. My favorite one is Ajahn Chah and the Ghost. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about how you understand the sutta versus the Sudhimagajanas. And specifically, I'm thinking, you gave us a belief from the Vasudhimada, the story about going to the uh, oasis and right. uh, using it to talk about sutta jhanas, though it's found in the Vasudhimada, right? Correctly remembering? So it suggests some kind of uh, uh, relationship, but you also insist on in different states. So. Right. So, Basically what the going to the oasis story is about, there's the excitement of thinking that might be an oasis, this might be relief for me, this is really good, that's PT. Okay? There's the, oh, this is fantastic, this is wonderful, that's sukha. There's, ah, oh, so refreshing, that's content. And there's rest. That's the fourth jhana. And those qualities of piti, sukha, contentment, rest, occur in both the sutta jhanas and the vasudhimaga jhanas. So the simile applies in both cases. Uh, although the, and the simile maybe goes back further than the, the sudhimaga understanding of the jhanas. I don't know how far back it goes, it just occurs in the Vasudhimaga. It's clear that the understanding of the jhanas at the time of the Vamutimaga, which I believe was 100, 200 years before the Vasudhimaga, was not quite as concentrated, and that the jhanas described in the Abhidhamma are definitely not as concentrated. So you, you can see this arc of increasing concentration levels as you go time-wise through the literature. So when that simile came in, I don't know, but it applies to PT, Sukha, Contentment, and the Quiet Stillness of the Fourth Jhana in both systems, in all three systems, actually. Um, in the beginning, you told us that Buddha sixth and seventh jhanas from his teachers. Seventh and eighth. Seventh and eighth, thank you. Uh, eight and verse two. <laughs> yeah. um, that means the other existing religions, or I don't know what to call them, uh, yeah. Brahmanism, Jainism, or whatever, <coughs> get this jhana idea before Buddhism. Yes. 
do we encounter the jhana practice in uh, any of Jainism exists today, Hinduism is a continuation of Brahminism. They practice jhanas in any way. I don't know about current practices. I don't know of any current practices of the jhanas <coughs> amongst today's Jains or today's Hindus. We do find uh, stuff that seems to be about the jhanas in the Upanishads, I think. I'm not certain of that. Okay? Uh, the Jain material that we have, uh, I'm not sure, you know, the, the stuff that goes back to the time of the Buddha, I'm not sure whether it mentions jhanas there or not. I do know that uh, some of the Sufis practice jhanas. Now, whether they discovered them independently or they got them from Buddhism, we have no idea. And some of the Christian mystics apparently practice the jhanas. Uh, Francisco de Asuna describes prayer states that apparently sound a lot like the jhanas. Uh, I heard this from Ayakema. I've looked to try and find Francisco de Asuna's writings on the internet, but I've come up with nothing. Uh, St. John of the Cross and Teresa de Avila talk about mystical states, but in reading their writings, I don't go, oh yeah, that's the jhanas. Uh, in fact, reading Teresa de Avila, I go, what? <laughs> I can't figure out what on earth she's talking about. St. John of the Cross was a little easier to read, but I didn't see any jhanas there. But this is the way the mind goes. You get a mind concentrated, and it's liable to stumble into one or more of these states. The fact that I can teach the jhanas has nothing to do with my skill as a teacher. It has to do with the fact that I'm teaching people whose minds, if they get quiet, tend to go into these states. And I'm just giving you a few hints. When you get quiet, find some pleasure and see what happens. Uh, but it's all about the fact that we're wired the same way. And so the jhanas were discovered, not invented. People were stumbling into them. They, they trace mindfulness of breathing back somewhere between several hundred and maybe several thousand years before the Buddha. If people have been following their breath for even a few hundred years before the Buddha, they would be stumbling into these states. I mean, I stumbled into the first jhana on my second retreat with no instruction whatsoever. And I meet other people who did them as a kid, stumbled into them on their first retreat. It's how the mind goes when it gets quiet enough. Uh, and so people that had skills of concentration would just stumble into these states. They got codified in increasing subtlety of object, one through eight. And they were available in the culture when the Buddha comes along and he learns all eight of them. And the difference was that his teachers were telling him, these are the end of the path. You get to nothingness, you did it. And the Buddha comes out and goes, no, it's still dukkha here. It didn't work. And the same thing for either perception or non-perception. You come out, you're back in the crazy, unreal, dukkha-filled world. He figured out these are a tool, these are a warm-up exercise for insight practice, and insight practice is what the transformation is. 
So he took the usage of the jhanas, not as an end, but as a tool on the way to liberation. And that's why they're so useful today. Okay. Time for last question, then a break. You had said that um, sometimes somebody has the experience where the first time they experience uh, the first jhana, it's really intense, and then that doesn't repeat again. So yeah. why is that? I suspect part of it is to do with the expectation. When you come back the second time, you're kind of expecting uh, what you, in a way, you weren't expecting before. Also, the first time, you're just stumbling around, and finally, when you hit it, you've been working at your concentration for so long. Like you've got a can of Coke and you're shaking it for five days. <laughs> right? When you rip the top off, it just goes everywhere. The next time, you've only been shaking the coke for one day, and it doesn't go quite as much. In other words, you, you just haven't built up that reservoir of unreleased PT, and so it's not quite as strong. That's my best guess as to what's going on. Okay, short break, and then we'll do that. Again, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. <clears throat> of some of the good things you've done during your life. You've all done lots of good things. Think of times when you were helpful, kind, loving, compassionate. Just bring a few of them to mind. someone you care about. You think of the good things that person has done. Maybe some of those good things were done for your benefit. They probably did lots of good things that weren't for your benefit, but nonetheless were good. Just think of this person and think of their goodness. Think of other people you're close to. 
Bring them to mind one by one and think of good things that each of them have done. of your acquaintances. <laughs> Bring them to mind one by one. Maybe you know good things they've done. You can be sure though that everybody's done some good things. Maybe they benefited you. Someone in a store or restaurant was helpful. Your co-worker benefited you. You see them benefiting others. Your neighbor. Lots of goodness around.
If someone you find difficult, even difficult people do good things from time to time. I can assure you that many people in this room have done many good things. We're surrounded by goodness here. And the people here at Oakwood, wow, they're being really good to us. We probably have no interaction with the neighbors, but yeah, I'm sure they do good things as well. In fact, people throughout the Midwest are doing good things. America, you find people doing quite amazing good things, helping solve problems of medical problems, mental health problems, psychological problems. All over the world, people doing good things. Probably far more goodness being done than you can imagine, far more than any other type of activity. Put your attention back on yourself. Sitting here in this room, and surrounded by an ocean of goodness. May all beings everywhere 